This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. It's not uncommon for writers to say, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. If you're a writer, you can't imagine a world in which writing isn't at the center. But how to make money at writing? That is a question that causes many to abandon the writing life for a path to something that feels less risky or less difficult. Our guest today is author Jennifer Olvera, a professional writer and author of and contributor to eight books, including Food Lover's Guide to Chicago, the Meat Lover's Slow Cooker Cookbook, Easy Mexican Food Favorites, and most recently, The Easy Meat Cookbook. Jennifer built her writing credibility and skills during her 20 plus year career of copy editing, magazine feature writing, and even technical writing. She has provided her copywriting skills at global Fortune 500 companies, including Target, Accenture, and Google. Jennifer is willing to tell you what many writers won't tell you. Be prepared to bust your ass if you want to make a living being a writer. We are thrilled to welcome Jennifer to discuss how she got her start writing, the difference between hobby writing and professional writing, and how to build a robust writing career. Welcome, Jennifer. We're so glad you're with us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we dig into the topic, Dave and I like to share something that we've made progress on during the week. So I'm going to put the pressure on Dave and make him go first. I think where I've made progress is in something very abstract, which is my thinking on what to send our clients for my business on a quarterly basis. So we try to, we try to get up above the noise and not just send social media and email and stuff. So we'll send something high end for print. And we've done this for years and years, but I realized what we were doing was kind of old and stale. And so I've been wrestling with what am I going to do? So I made some, I made some progress in my thinking. And I'm not even going to tell you what it is, but it's probably <laughs> so small, but I feel good about it. So I've made progress about what I think we're going to send our clients and our referral sources moving forward. So there you have it. How about you, Melissa? Yeah. So well, I moved into my space at Warehouse 55, so I'm feeling really good about that. It was a huge move um, into the, um, it's an old elevator space I talked about in a previous episode. And so I had to move everything from my old space at the vintage Warehouse 55 to my new space. And it was just a ton of work and a lot of construction that went into making the space workable. But my husband and I, we got there um, Thursday and Friday evening in the evening, like at six o'clock, and we stayed up all night, two nights in a row, getting it done. So I am oh glad that that is done. <laughs> it feels like a lot of progress in a very short period. Congratulations. Thank you. It feels good. Now, hopefully I can take a break and not have to be there all the time. <laughs> what about you, Jennifer? Is there anything that you feel like you're making forward progress in? Actually, I've been kind of hard on myself lately because I feel like I'm not Beyond career stuff, it just feels like everything is a little bit stagnant with the pandemic and working from home. And I have two kids who are in remote learning and the house isn't always the way I want. And, you know, just being kind of a type A personality, which I think a lot of writers actually tend to be, especially editors. 
I feel like I need something to dig into. I usually try to have something that I really throw myself into. And I just got back from a 4,600 mile cross country road trip with my family to Utah. And I really had to do a lot of planning for that. So I was focused on that. And now I'm feeling like I need that next big thing to kind of zero in on so that I feel like I'm making headway, but I'm not there yet. Tell us about your trip, just because it's innately interesting. What prompted you to take the trip and what were you hoping to get out of it? I'm just so curious. I have traveled a lot internationally for my career and I've also traveled throughout the U.S., mostly to major cities. And one of the things that became apparent to me as I would travel with journalists, so many of us have not really seen our country and how beautiful it is. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the national parks are just kind of inaccessible, especially when you have kids, you know, they're not close to an airport. Hiking may seem like it's out of the question. Um, They're in remote areas. So when I got divorced about uh, six years, six years, seven years back, I really kind of decided that that was going to be one of my missions is to see more of this country, the, the kind of further corners and less frequented places. So I had been planning the trip for a while. I had thought about doing it over the summer and we had originally discussed flying and just decided we weren't comfortable with it at this time. So we did a trial run over the summer and we took a road trip, like a 13, 14 hour road trip to South Carolina and figured out that we could do it with a little one um, who is four now, he was three then. So it just kind of built from there. I guess really what I wanted more than anything was a reset, you know, just to kind of go somewhere that sort of grounds you and takes you out of your daily experience. Something that makes you realize that everything in the world is really bigger than, you know, what your life is and what your problems are and where you're at um, at any given time. So it just really helped ground me. So that was kind of the motivating factor. Was there one place that stands out in your memory as being a like a momentous stop where you thought, Man, I wish I could bottle this up? <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. it. It was just such a varied landscape. And when I was planning it, I sort of thought, because we ended up going to seven national parks pretty much back to back. And, you know, I wondered if all the rocks were going to start looking the same, you know, <laughs> if it was going to get dull to the kids or something like that. And it just wasn't, I mean, every, every turn, one side of the road to the other, around every bend, every corner, every national park, it was so varied and so geologically interesting. That just really became kind of the standout feature. Um, and, and honestly, the drives were 50% of it. I can't imagine seeing it any other way. Um, and the, the place that really jumped out at, to us, and I think we'd like to spend more time in, is Moab, um, going to Arches National Park and Canyonlands. The landscapes were just so vast and so spectacular. It was it, it was just amazing. So um, that that's really the area I think I'd like to spend more time. I, I loved Bryce. I loved Capitol Reef. Zion was amazing. We took a flight, um, like did some flight seeing over it. All of it was so beautiful, but I just felt more connected to the Moab area. Did you do any writing while you were on the trip or no? <laughs> I no. did not. No, um, I actually don't do a lot of writing um, for myself personally. That surprises people sometimes. I don't keep a journal. No, I was just trying to take it all in, just, just kind of absorb it. I think that it is a myth. Some people think that you have to keep a journal. And certainly I have friends who are writers that do that and they're, it's wonderful. I have kept a journal on and off for all these years. It helps you recall specific events And there's some work that it does, I think, in your imagination. 
But for me, I don't have to have that to write. If I'm to be perfectly honest, I spend so much of my time writing that I kind of like to dial it down <laughs> during my off hours. The idea of sitting there and penning something is, it, yeah. you know, it became less and less appealing to me, if I'm to be honest. So that's probably part of it as well. Take us back to the beginning when you knew you wanted to be a, a writer. I'm, I'm curious about that and if your expectations of what you thought a writer were when you first thought, I want to be a writer if those expectations are different than what actually being a writer is all about. I went to DePaul University on an academic scholarship and I put myself through college, you know, anything additional above and beyond that. Um, I, I was on my own at age 19. So I really went into a writing career knowing that I had to make it count. I didn't have a fallback. I didn't have financial support. It was really on me to succeed or to fail. I took a brief period where I, I considered um, going to art school. Ultimately, I came to the conclusion I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> and, and I just didn't think it was a viable career. So when I went to DePaul, I went there with the intention of being a writer, of becoming one, but also practical in knowing that it might not be a realistic career. So my fallback plan was to get an education in um, English literature and become a teacher if necessary. It wasn't where my uh, passion was, but I thought it would be a way to do something that I love, maybe inspire other people and actually make a living doing it. Teachers are wonderful. I support them entirely and know how hard their work is. Um, but thankfully, I was able to follow my passion and that was writing. Um, I did get my start at um, you know, publishing companies and newspapers. But I decided to go off on my own in 2000, and I've been um, fully self-employed since then, and I'm happy that I left the corporate world, at least the in-office corporate world, I would say. What was it about wanting to be a writer? What was, what, what, what did you, why? Why did you want to be a writer, I think, is what my question is. I don't know. I mean, that's not an easy thing to answer, because I just, I feel like it was always a part of me. I was a voracious reader as a child. Language was always a big part of my life, um, expressing myself. I've always been an expressive person and language was just what made sense to me. It was just kind of a fundamental part of me. So I didn't have any kind of epiphany. I didn't grow up thinking I was necessarily going to be an author. Although I do remember, you know, reading um, books in childhood and actually writing to the authors and, you know, waiting to get responses back and that really exciting me. So it was definitely something that I was fascinated by. What was the work that you had to learn or how did you have to learn how to work when you decided that you wanted to be a writer, you realize it's gonna take work, yeah. it's going to take discipline. What was the learning curve about that you had to take? Well, I had to write lots of papers in college like sometimes five a week, depending on what my course load was. So that was pretty rough. And I, I did not enjoy it at all. <laughs> it was tedious. Um, it, was, it was kind of exhausting to me to have to regurgitate ideas about work that had been around for so long and thinking, I'm not really going to come up with anything new here. It's all been said before. I don't think I'm going to find a new angle on Shakespeare, you know? And there was just something that felt really stagnant about it to me. 
And one of the biggest things that I learned early in my career is that I didn't really learn what I needed to learn to make this living in college. And I think that's something a lot of people do come to the conclusion of whether they end up actually going into their field or they end up veering off and doing something completely different. I learned on the job, but the thing that I took away from college was language and cadence and voice, really voice, shaping what was in my mind into words. And then it was just building blocks, you know, um, challenging myself one thing at a time to do something that took me out of my comfort zone to get to a place where I was doing something that I loved. I loved that you talk about, and one time when we spoke, you talked about how you think of voice and writing, connecting words as um, like stanzas. And I thought that was really a beautiful idea that you, you see these words working together and kind of rhythm and... I went to graduate school um, in English. I got my undergraduate in English and I didn't have that sense. I was trying to mimic all the academic writers. I wasn't thinking in terms of, you know, how can I think about making my words really engaging? I was just trying to make my words impressive. So I, where did that come from? Where did you begin to think in those terms? Well, first of all, I don't think I came to the conclusion that that's what I was doing until later in my career. But I've always been... I've always been a person who hears the words in my head. I, I played flute as a, a young girl and I think that's where kind of the syncopation and cadence, you know, um, when I would read even my papers in college, I'd be very concerned about how the sentences sounded in my head more than how they read on paper. And I just think that that is something that, again, you know, like I don't really think about it, <laughs> but if I'm, if I'm asked, um, I realize that that's what I'm doing on a daily basis is just thinking about how words sound and, and also specifically creating visuals with language. That, that was really something that I always wanted to do is just sort of create pictures with words. Did you have any editors along the way? You mentioned that you had worked for some publishers and then you went out on your own. Anybody that helped you think and write and really encouraged your voice? It's not necessarily a, a happy kickstart into the career, but when I was um, in third grade, I had a teacher called Mrs. Gearing. And I think she saw something, she saw something in me when it came to writing and she decided, um, to have me do sort of extracurricular poetry is how I remember it. I mean, again, I was in third grade, but so she had me writing for extra credit or whatever, um, you know, just, just poems. And I remember putting a book together uh, and being really proud of it, you know, whatever I thought poetry was at that time and giving it to her. And I'm sure she said more than this, but the feedback I remember her saying was, this is not what I had in mind. Huh. You know, she said, you know, you don't always have to rhyme words. That's not what poetry has to be. And I remember being kind of crushed by it. And I don't remember continuing to do it with her. I don't remember continuing writing for her on the side or anything like that. But that always stuck with me. And I've always been a very strong-willed person. If you tell me I can't, I'll show you that I can. So I think that helped shape my perspective really early on. Kind of throughout the course of my career, I don't know that there was any particular mentor or a moment that I walked away with that knowledge. But I do think that the repetition of doing it and the feedback that I got um, played a big role in that. What I always looked for was ways to improve, ways to learn. And 
eventually ways to make things as simple on my editors as possible. So, you know, sometimes they're nice and sometimes they're not so nice about it. But what I learned is that my job was to make their job easier. So it was, it was really kind of that process to getting to that point that I think helped to shape me. And it was more the challenge of it than it was a, a nurturing experience, I suppose, if I'm to be honest. One thing that you mentioned in the email that you had sent to us when you responded to some of our questions was this difference between someone who wants to write professionally and someone who wants to write, I think you called it hobby writing. <laughs> and there, there may be even a third category, somebody who's a professional, like an academician, but wants to write more popularly. It's not paying for the rent, so to speak, but they he or she wants to build his or her writing. If somebody has is just starting out, let's say, and they want to be a hobby writer, let's just start with that, which I thought was a great, uh, was a great, um, just a great phrase and great turn of phrase. What would you say to them? What's the first step? Would you say here? You need to really start doing this. I think you need to understand um, the structure of communicating as a writer, and I'm thinking specifically of where I got my start in journalism, it, being able to tell a story, being able to paint a visual, um, and that can apply to creative writing, that can apply to um, feature writing, and it certainly applies to copywriting when you're, you're using language to tell the story of a brand. So I think really the first place to start is is figuring out how to get that story out and how to do it in a in a, a top-down, engaging, impactful way. And it takes practice. And I think that beginning with what you know, if you're lucky enough to do that, um, whether it's because you have the time um, and leisure to do it or because you're fortunate enough to fall into a job that allows you that time and space just really figuring out how to structure things and create an engaging story that has people want to come back for more. When people hear that you're a professional writer and they say, what is it like? Oh my gosh, that's so amazing. <laughs> what do you think people are most surprised by when you tell them what it's really like? It's hard. You're going to have to probably compromise your integrity sometimes. Um, you're going to take jobs that <laughs> are below your pay grade. Um, sometimes you even have to do things for free um, and you shouldn't be too proud to do it because every single one of those things that you do is a building block. It helps you discover who you are as a person. It helps you discover who you are as a writer. And I think most importantly, it helps to build that foundation, the, the connections that you're gonna need. And I have learned time and time and time again that sometimes it's those small things that I did the impression that I left with someone that even five years later, it can come around and someone reaches out to me because they remembered me. I think that that's, that's the first piece of advice I would give on that front. I would agree with you. I was mentioned this in an email to you that I wrote for a shelter magazine a couple of years ago and it recently went under, but to get my start, I basically just blatantly asked the editor for an opportunity to write an article for free. I said, I'll write it for free. And if you don't like my writing, you can rewrite it. And there's no, there's no loss for you. But I was willing to write something for free, even though it was a lot of work, because I, I was interested in more work down the road. So I do think that that's a principle. Like, sometimes you just have to be willing to do the work, especially if you're entering in to the profession with no credibility. <laughs> 
Absolutely. <laughs> that That's where the building blocks come into play because once you get that break, you can tell other people that you did something and then you can keep building and building and building on that. Um, and it, it, it gives you authority, you know, as a self-employed writer, knowing that I had to align myself with recognizable names and publications and brands, I think is what helped to advance me where I am today. And even what your first book, right, that was through an association that you had with a major, was it a, a newspaper? I'm trying to remember. Tell me about how that first book came about. And it was through a connection that you had through your other writing experience, correct? I The first thing that I wrote was through, uh, I, I did like the Zagat surveys, so the restaurant reviews. But I was asked to contribute to um, uh, food Encyclopedia of Chicago. And that came through, I, I mean, many years later. I mean, I, I think it was maybe in 2014. And it was writers that I had worked with back when I did things for Chicago Tribune. And they, they weren't even necessarily people that I worked with again over the years, but we have sort of a, a, a circle in Chicago and people just kind of see each other's names. We recommend each other. It's, it's about that kind of fostering a relationship and keeping people up to date, you know, whether it's through social media or whatever about what it is that you're doing um, career-wise so that they think of you and keep you top of mind. So um, it works. Well, one of the things that strikes me about several of your responses is this idea that something small leads to the next thing you call them building blocks. I just think we need to emphasize that for people who are just starting out because there's this perception, it, it comes in this expression, I have no experience, but I'm willing to start at the top. And I think we all feel that way when we're starting something new that somehow we're, we can bypass <laughs> this years and years of discipline and and the hard part of learning how to write, but it's also the connections. And as I listen to your story and, and, to, and see where you are right now, I can't see all those little moments where you're doing the free piece, you're doing the piece where you go, you know, this is kind of beneath me, but I need the money and it's good money. I mean, I, I remember doing all sorts of things like that where you take projects. I remember doing one for a big corporation. And as I wrote it, I thought, gosh, I can't believe after all these years, this is what I'm doing, you know, but yet they paid, you know, about five grand. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was good money. It's not like I was compromising my integrity in, in the sense of I was writing for a, a crime website or something like that. But it was, it was, it was what I thought was beneath me. And you've mentioned that. I thought, you know, it is those building blocks. I love that phrase, building blocks. Part of it is just never knowing when it's going to come around again. And, and the other thing is you can never underestimate the power of learning in your career. Writing is one of those things where I don't think you ever reach a final point. It's always, it's always moving and changing. Um, the topics you're writing about are different. The world around you is not the same as it was five, 10 years ago. So it's this constant, it's a career that's constantly in flux. And I think the way you need to approach it is to think about it in terms of a learning experience. I think that comes from my journalism background as well, where everything that I wrote was a learning experience. I had to learn about people. I had to learn about things that I didn't necessarily understand or a language of a particular 
industry or something that was not familiar to me. And I think when you approach writing with a sense of wonder, it doesn't feel so much like a chore or a, a compromise or something that's beneath you because you're doing something to enrich yourself, no matter what that project is. That's really, really good. I, we do a lot of copywriting for clients in our, um, our other business, CC Strategy. And I feel that way all the time. Like I'm, I'm constantly having to learn new things and interpret things for you know, the audience that sometimes are really foggy in my own mind. So I have to wrap my, my mind around and learn all these new things. And authors have this great responsibility to be interpreters and to make topics and content that's not so interesting, very interesting. And you're right, it does enrich your life. Absolutely, that's so good. What is the difference between copywriting and writing a book? Having done a lot of byline related work early in my career, and, and I would put book writing in the same category as this, it's very personal. You're really entwined in it because you are writing it directly in your voice. Your name is attached to it. It's a, a source of pride and success or failure. <laughs> Whereas copywriting, your voice is your voice, your job, it's all to be what that corporate client wants you to be. I don't feel the same emotional connection to copywriting as I do to things that I have byline written or books or anything like that. That's not to say I don't take an extreme source of pride out of doing a good job at uh, something for my corporate clients, but it's just a different, it's a different experience. It's not something I personally internalize the way that I do um, my books or, or my features or anything like that. So what would you tell somebody about book writing? Um, if they say, I want to write a book, what, what would you tell them? Where would you tell them to start? Uh, with a good outline. It can easily spin out of control. Um, you, can, you can ramble, you can incorporate things that may take away from the more potent things. You know, I think you need to go into it with a really clear objective, a really clear story, a really clear endpoint, and the vision to know what it is you're trying to convey so that you, you stay honest to that. You stay true to it and you, and you don't let yourself wander. Normally as a writer, I'm not someone who, who writes outlines. I take a very um, top-down approach to especially feature writing to storytelling. But in the case of a book, um, it's much larger and <laughs> the beginning of it is almost too far away to remember once you get halfway through. Yeah. So you write primarily cookbooks and Dave and I, in our course and talking with authors whom we coach, we talk about you have to have a thesis. So would you say that your cookbooks have a thesis, like one promise, one overarching big idea that you want people to get? I mean, I would say it's probably a common thread between all of them, and that's to make, to make things as simple as possible and to be able to bring your experiences in the world, the places you've been, into your home kitchen. I as I mentioned, traveled a lot internationally. And when I did, my goal always, whether it was for a project that I was working on or just general enrichment, was to be able to take those foods and those experiences I had with people, um, the way they would share food, the way that they would welcome us into their homes or into their restaurants, and, and to be able to bring that experience into my home, to feel like my four walls were not confining that they were a way to um, recreate some of those experiences or to pay homage to them. 
So my cookbooks are a representation of that. And it's a way to not do the seven day a week, same meal plan over and over again. I'm kind of a restless soul when it comes to cooking. I want to do, um, I want to make a German meal one day and a Mexican, something authentic and Mexican the next day. Um, just really being able to, to kind of travel and, and experience the world, even when I'm at home. So I want to, I want to share that with other people. As you look ahead, is there something you have in the back of your mind? Like, you know, this is something I, I'm probably going to write about someday. So it's not corporate. It's not deadline driven. Like, you know, you have, you have a cookbook that you've already gotten the cycle. So you have to write for that. You have a, a byline piece for a magazine. You have to write for that. But is there, is there something in your head about another piece down the road you think you'd like to get out into the world? Uh, yeah, there is. Um, my son was born three months early and he's had a lot of, issues on account of um, being a preemie, um, mostly food related, ironic, right? So I think I, at some point, want to write about that journey. It's just that I don't feel it's finished yet and it's still kind of raw and painful to me. So um, it's not really something that I've embarked on, um, but, but it's always there, it's in my mind, um, how I might share that experience with other people and help them feel heard, help them feel like they're not alone through it. I just wanna encourage you when the time is right, that would be an enormous help to parents. Yeah. I also like what you're saying to our audience, which is you may have a book in you, but it may not be ready yet. And sometimes you just have to wait for the experiences to, to continue to unfold, for your, your thinking to fully develop, or maybe it's even having the space and time to do that. But I find that really encouraging that just because you have an idea doesn't mean that you necessarily have to start writing it now. I mean, to be able to pull off a book, it needs to be fully formed, right? You need to have a, a beginning, a middle, an end, um, and a reason. And um, sometimes it really helps to kind of mull that over and, and use those building blocks of life, really, to go back to that idea until you get to that point where you can tell that story in a compelling way. Right, right. Any other advice that you'd give to people who say, I want to write a book? Like, are there any questions that you think they should be asking themselves before they embark on that journey besides have that outline? Are there any other questions that you think they need to ask or any bits of advice, like be prepared for this really hard moment when you're writing a book? <laughs> uh, when, uh, probably the moment when you want to throw in the towel and call it quits because it feels like the finish line is so far away. But I don't know, just in terms of things to ask yourself, and, and to kind of think through is what is it that you want to evoke from someone? What is it you want them to feel and experience through your words, or in my case, my recipes? That should kind of be the guiding factor. It kind of takes you out of yourself and it, it helps you envision what someone is thinking and feeling when they're reading your words. And I think that's really important because um, the whole point of writing a book, the whole point of writing really is to evoke feelings to make people think, to challenge them, or to give them experiences that maybe, maybe spark a memory or maybe encourage them to embark down a path that they were afraid to embark down before. I think what you're saying is so important because I think that so many people enter the book writing journey because they want to have a trophy. They want to have a book, a trophy, like, look at me, I wrote a book. And what you're saying is it's really more than, a, 
it's not about you really. It's about the readers and mm -hmm. the impact that this book has on the world. And so I think the way you framed that is so incredibly powerful and profound that really when you write this book, it, it should be less about what am I gonna get out of this and more about what are my readers gonna get out of this and how is the world gonna be different because of the words in the world. I love that. It's really, really insightful. At the end of the day, you can write and write and write until, <laughs> you know, your fingers hurt. But if nobody's going to read it, you're an audience of one. And that's not very um, fulfilling. Yeah. Um, so you always need to keep in the forefront of your mind um, what your goal is for the people who are going to read your words. That's great. Man, that's a great wrap. What do you want to evoke in your readers? Oh, my gosh. That is a great question. That's a great way to end this episode. Holy cow. Absolutely. And so I mentioned, Jennifer, that we also like to end our episodes with words of the episode where we like to share a word that we think is fun or that we recently learned. Um, so I'll go first. My word is maladroit. And I guess I always knew what this meant, but my friend and I, we were on a road trip this summer and we were passing time. So I found this site with like a hundred words that every person should know and love. And, and I think there was another word, word list about words that sound terrible, but you know, are, have great meanings. And I think this was in the, the, the one, the list where the words don't sound great, but maladroit, it means clumsy. And I think it has kind of that, um, that connotative value. And I definitely am maladroit. I feel like I'm always tripping and doing strange things. So it's not really a, it's kind of a clumsy word, but I think if used correctly in writing, it could be a, good, a provocative word. So that's my word. What about you, Dave? I love that word. My word is senescence. Senescence, which basically is the process of dying, right? And once you hit your late 20s, 29, 30, you start to die. The body actually starts to die. It's a biological term, senescence. But one of my favorite outdoor writers is Rick Bass. And Rick is from Northwestern Montana. And he's written a bunch of books about the West, both fiction and nonfiction. He uses this word talking about, well, I'll, I'll read the sentence to you. It's really, really great. It's a great use of the word. He goes, one, so he's talking about his life up in the mountains. And so he's talking about, he has a couple girls and he says, one day while the girls are at school, I carry the great pumpkin and his entourage of the great cucumbers off the porch where they have been slipping daily into deeper and deeper senescence, collapsing in on themselves as each night's frost breaks them down further as if breathing through some cold bellows, the allure rot into them rather than the spark of life Already they retain only mere vestiges of their former glory. What great personification too. I mean, that's, that's good writing. <laughs> and it's such a long sentence, right? It keeps going. At some point you go, ah! but I just thought that was so great. Using the word senescence related to the caving in of the pumpkins and the great cucumbers that are on the porch. You know how that happens at Halloween time, right? About three days after Halloween, they're all shrunken, 80-year-old men. Yeah. You know what I like about that that sentence and its length is it kind of has this, because it's so long, it kind of takes you on this long journey and it's like impending doom. It just goes on and on and on, which kind of, I think, 
reflects the word senescence. So I wonder if you did that intentionally. There's my literature background, you know, trying to find the relationship between form and meaning. So what about you, Jennifer? Do you want to share a word? Well, I don't think I'm answering your question directly, but um, when, when you brought that up, it made me think about this children's book called Sparkle and Spin. Um, it was written back in the 50s and I read it I read it to my eldest son when he was little and I read it to my little boy now. And it's basically about like the power of words in general. One of the pages is like a word, a word is something you shout bang or boo when you jump from behind a chair, something you whisper softly on a little breeze that says hush hush. And it goes on to say basically how words, words not only inform us, but they, they, they make us feel. And it, it talks about, you know, how words sound like what they are sometimes, you know, and I, I've always, I've always favored words that are kind of like gentle sounding, words like willow or flutter or just kind of gentle words that you can almost picture what they are um, when you're saying them. Um, so I guess I would lean toward words of that sort. I love that. And I, and I love, I think that children's authors, they do such a good job of pointing out great words that have really wonderful sounds because they are sometimes simple, but they, they use them they have to choose their words wisely because you know you can only have so many words for children's books but one of my favorite books reading my son was when the fireflies come by i think it was jonathan london but it was the same i loved it for the same reason because it had so much onomatopoeia like slam crack thing you know i just i remember delighting in that and thinking this is so good for a child to hear it helps them understand that language matters and so i can identify with what you're saying for sure i'm gonna have to check out that book what's it oh. called again? Sparkle and spin. Sparkle and spin. Yeah, it just made me think of uh, one of the lines: "Our words are, words are how what you think inside comes out, and how you remember what you might forget about." That's great. That's yeah. great. I love that. Okay. So, well, Jennifer, I think we should have you on on our podcast again. I feel like we're barely scratching <laughs> scratching the surface. I feel like there's so much more that you could share with our audience just because of your professional background and you just have so much wisdom. It's just oozing out of you. So thank you so much for this, this really wonderful 40 minutes together and we hope to have you back. Thank you so much. Sure, I would love to anytime. Thank you. So I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.